We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Yosola Olohunjola, a producer here at IQ2. Today on the podcast, we're discussing how historical narratives play into the art and culture we consume today. We'll be hearing from a recent event recorded at Harewood House, a stately home in the north of England with a history that's deeply interwoven with the history of the transatlantic slave trade. Our host today is the presenter and writer Yasmin Abdelmajid, who will explore questions on race, representation and power with our expert panel. Let's join Yasmin now for more. Thank you so much for joining us and I'm delighted to welcome you to this event on portraiture, race and British history. We're here in the stately surrounds of Harewood House, a country estate in West Yorkshire with a history that's deeply rooted in the transatlantic slave trade and we'll be unpacking some of this tangled past in our conversation this evening. But first of all, why are we here and why now? For those of you in the room, you can see that we're surrounded by portraits. There's a sea of faces behind me. Some have called it the White Hall of Fame. And many of the portraits shown at Harewood House represent members of the Lassels family following the tradition of stately homes across the country. The ground this house was built on was bought by Henry Lassels in 1738, with money gained directly from the sugar trade. So in other words, through owning plantations, enslaved people, ships, warehouses, etc. Henry's eldest son, Edwin, the first Baron Harewood, was born in Barbados and went to use the wealth generated from the family business to build and furnish the house we're in right now. But for several centuries, if you looked at the walls of this house, there were no obvious signs of the history or the origin of Harewood's wealth. So this event coincides with the first installment of Missing Portraits, a series of commissioned photographic portraits initiated by David Lassels and Diane House, the Earl and Countess of Harewood. The portraits focus on people of African-Caribbean heritage with a particular connection to Harewood House. The first portrait is of Dr. Arthur France, who's actually here with us tonight, which is lovely. Arthur France is in the first row. Thank you. <laughs> Made by Leeds-based artist and filmmaker, Ashley Carell, who's also in the audience today. 
Arthur France is a leading community activist and the founder of Leeds West Indian Carnival, which predates its more famous sister event in Notting Hill. And I'm sure Dr. Arthur will tell you all about the carnival here in Leeds. Now, each portrait has been specially commissioned to redress the historic lack of diversity in Harewood's art collection and create awareness about its colonial past. Missing Portraits is one of many initiatives that form part of Harewood's Open History Program, a long-standing commitment to being transparent about its past, tackling racism, and promoting equality and inclusion. This evening is an opportunity to experience this in action and have an honest conversation about how Harewood's story relates to Britain's wider story. So let me introduce our wonderful panel for tonight. So we have in the glorious white, we have Moya Lothian-McLean, journalist and contributing editor at Navarra Media, and is also the host of Human Resources, a podcast by Broccoli Content about Britain's slaving past. Let's give Moya a round of applause. It is also a great podcast, which I highly recommend. I know there's many podcasts out there. It's a crowded market, but I highly recommend. We have right next to me, Dr. Nicholas Cullinan, um, the director of the National Portrait Gallery, which is set to reopen in June 2023 this year, following a major redevelopment, the largest transformation that the gallery has seen since it opened in 1896. Let's give Dr. Nicholas a round of Right at the end, we have Thomas J. Price, an artist and sculptor, a very famous artist and sculptor, yes, whose work deals with questions of representation, power, and status. In 2022, he was commissioned by Hackney Council to create a permanent public sculpture in commemoration of the Windrush generation. Thank you, Thomas. And finally, we have David Lassels, the eighth Earl of Harewood. David has worked as a film producer for more than 20 years and was the chairman of the Harewood House Trust for many years. Along with his wife, Diane, who's also in the audience, he has sought to promote the power of the arts as a vehicle for social change, whether that's through fighting racism or promoting environmental stewardship. Thank you, David. So. Let's begin. David, I want to ask, I want to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach to representing Harewood's history and why focus on the idea of missing portraits in particular? Well, it was my wife Diane's idea, really, initially, and it grew out of the fact that there are, in this house, I've never counted actually, but, but probably hundreds of portraits of different people. Mostly, as you say, members of the Lassels family or people connected to the Lassels family. So all of them white, all of them rich, all of them people of privilege. Of course, at that time, 18th and 19th centuries, which you could say is the kind of heyday of portraiture, if you'd made it, whatever sphere you'd made it in, as a successful military man, as a businessman, as a property owner, as a whatever it may be, you had your portrait painted by the best portrait painter that you could afford. That was very much part of, of, of having made it in those days. So, as I said, these hundreds of portraits here, but in a way they represent as houses like this do, so many historic properties in this country do, they represent actually a very narrow view of that, of that history. Nothing we can do about that, nothing we can do to change the way that was represented historically. But there was a way, Diane's idea, of, of what she calls sort of retrofitting the, co the collection by making new portraits in the style of these 18th and 19th century portraits. I mean, photographic, we decided we wanted to do them photographically as being a, a, you know, probably the, the, the strongest present day portrait tradition. Um, 
but very much in the style of those um, uh, historic portraits, both in the way uh, they were lit, the way the poser was sitting, and the way they were framed, as you can see in the portrait of Arthur there at the end. With the idea that, that we then create an exhibition around the person who was about, telling them why they're, why they're important, why their lives are important, why, what their connection with, with this place is. And then after the exhibition uh, ends, that will become part of the permanent collection. And we would, as it were, slip them in amongst the portraits in the house uh, and they should be not indistinguishable from those but they should fit in well on those walls uh, and people will go around and look at them and they will I'm sure yeah, people will be who's that why is he here and that's exactly the question that we want to be that we want people to ask and once you start having that conversation something interesting starts to go out of it I think. I, I love that idea of sort of wandering around a home like this and then sort of being slightly startled mm. by one of the, yeah. in, in, in a sort of positive way. Nick, did you want to respond to, I saw, I saw a lot of nodding, so I thought I might pass <laughs> to you. <laughs> um, no, it's just really interesting to hear about your challenges and what you've been doing, and it's not dissimilar to what we're doing at the National Portrait Gallery. And obviously, as you said, we've been closed for some time doing this transformation project, and that has always been with the idea of thinking about our collection and how we communicate it to our visitors. And, it, and the projects began with lots of visitor research and understanding you know, why people came to the gallery, all different types of audiences, what they loved, what they didn't like, and also why people didn't come to the gallery. And what came through from all that research is that you know, all of our audiences, whether they were a sort of you know, long-standing audience or a new audience, they all wanted it to represent Britain now in all of its complexity. Obviously, we look often at Britain's past, but it needs to reflect the Britain of now as well. And everyone, as you've mentioned, really wanted more transparency and a sense of kind of honesty about Britain's past and in a way marking the change too from then and now. So as you were saying, we've been thinking about ways to fill in gaps, to um, bring in contemporary artists to fill in gaps. And, and that's something we'll do uh, throughout the building, also with Thomas, which we'll talk about later on, I'm sure. But also to bring out stories that are already in the collection. And for example, and it's kind of interesting because in a way it's almost self-selecting. So one of our most popular portraits that's the most, for a while was the most searched for image on our website of every British person ever living was Sarah Forbes Spinetta, that extraordinary um, woman from the 19th century who was uh, a Yoruba princess who was brought to London really against her will and was then adopted by Queen Victoria as her goddaughter and spent the rest of her life here. And we have these two extraordinary images of her by Camille Sylvie, a 19th century photographer. And one of those images has become the most searched for image on our website. And so one thing that we'll do is think about also, because there's questions too about scale, like yeah. photography alongside painting can be 19th century photography, which is quite small, can be sort of drowned out. So we're thinking very carefully about, you know, scale, balance, and as you said, sort of how to surprise people and, and how to bring in stories that were perhaps, you know, there but not shown or missing. And it will begin in the Tudor period. It'll begin with John Blank, who was a trumpeter in the court of Henry VII and Henry VIII and the first person of colour to be depicted in this country. So it's woven all the way through. And I'll just say one final yeah, thing and then I'll shut up. We, we have a, stage, <laughs> I just don't want to hug the conversation, but we, we have a really good advisory group. And one thing that's very interesting is, we, you know, the National Portrait Gallery, so obviously we tell the, the story of Britain through portraiture, and we, we have a twofold challenge and an opportunity. One is to tell a transparent story of Britain and empire and slavery, as you're doing here. But what was very clear to you from our advisory group is that it could also be offensive to only tell the story of the black presence in Britain until Windrush, 
through slavery. Mm. And so we've been very focused on also how to find stories about transcendence and agency and emancipation to run alongside the other narratives. So there's two narratives that need to be told and woven through, mm. but I'll stop at that point. You've given us so much to work with. So we'll come back <laughs> okay. to a lot of that. And at, at that, thank you. And so Thomas, I might bring you in at this point. I'm curious actually, if you have any thoughts on the idea that, you know, this particular image of, you know, a, a black woman, a Yoruba woman is like the most searched for image in all of your collection. That, that seems interesting to me. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, but the question kind of associated with your work is about this idea of portraiture because you're a sculptor and many of your works have like a portrait-like feeling, but you don't describe them as being portraits. So I'm curious about your relationship with the idea of portraiture and depicting people. You know, just that small question. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm really interested in the desire to be portrayed. I'm really interested in that desire to, for one another to connect. So it's that idea about empathy and about being included and about existing and being made to feel that you exist and that you're valued. And I think I sort of fell into this sort of style of portraiture. I came from a background which was very much about what's happening internally. So I was using abstract ways to present emotion, feelings, probably at a time when it wasn't particularly fashionable to do so. I then sort of realized that if I really want to connect to people and get people connected to the works and really feeling able to talk about the works, they felt most able to comment on something that they could recognize and they felt most able to comment on a person and it was actually through this desire to create empathy and experiment with moments of empathy moments of connection or failure to connect that race was placed upon the works that I was creating because actually initially I was sculpting and doing animations stop motion animations to kind of recreate blinks and slight movements and try to create this sort of experience of presence and this experience of engagement with an object which became a personality and a personality became you. And, and if it didn't, you were in a space where you were able to examine why that was the case. And it wasn't until I did an animation of the first black character, because initially I was observing people. I was that weirdo on the bus that would be looking at you. <laughs> and, um, and it was my peers at the time who, who couldn't get past the fact that this character happened to be black. And for me, I was just sculpting a person. And so subsequently throughout my practice, I was, I was experimenting even more and pushing this sort of, this barrier, you know, working with the blackness, mm. but in a way that I, I didn't address it. I didn't verbally address it. I was making people, what do you mean? It's black. Oh, you know, because I've always said, and it's a bit of a cop out perhaps, but it's, it's true, is that the works are what you bring to them. Mm. And I think it's a really interesting experiment to have going on in terms of what we bring to these people and, and in different contexts. So it's, you know, it's incredible to be here this evening in this environment. And so I don't know, this, I, I won't talk too much, but in terms of like this idea of portraiture and... You're all apologizing for speaking when that's exactly what we brought you <laughs> we're, for. We're probably, we're probably used to like, you know, going off on long tangents by ourselves and um, I'm aware of people have to speak, but it's, it's interesting, this idea of portraiture, the desire to be portrayed, this idea of being as good as this historical mm. genre. And I guess within my works, which is very important to note that they're actually they're made up characters. These are not portraits of individuals. These are physio physiognomy kind of like elements put together to create experiments. And dealing with material and scale was also important in terms of dealing with and status. Why, why was that important to you for it not to be like one person in particular? Because that's, you know, in the history of portraiture, as yeah. I understand it, it's, you know, it's about you're painting a particular person, you're depicting a particular person. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's the status attached to who, who has created this portrait. That's one element of status. Uh, the material that works are created it. So like this idea, I thought it very interesting in terms of photography versus something painted, because obviously mm -hmm. there's still that conversation in terms of like which has more value in terms of what takes more time, you know. Thank you, Moya. I see you. I see you writing notes. So I'm coming to you. I'm coming to. You. Do you want to respond to that, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about your podcast as well. Uh, do I want to respond to that? Um, I think picking up on what you said about this desire to be betrayed is also this desire to be remembered. Mm -hmm. That's something I think about a lot in when we're making this podcast and the stories that we're telling. Uh, I think in this country we obviously have a great man theory of history that we most often return to again and again, and it's this idea about who gets represented throughout history. And I think something I really wanted to do with the podcast was not try and frame the histories that we're telling through that, that lens. So I didn't want to just do it in a way of, these people should be treated in the same way as Napoleon because I don't think that's the way history should be told. It should be texted in a different way. It should be treated in a different way. One of the, my favourite episodes that we do is when we're talking about oral histories on the west coast of um, what is now Ghana um, and how people remember history then, how completely different it is to Western histories and how the way that people are framed in that. So yeah, this, this idea of who, who want, why do you want to be remembered in this particular, through this particular lens, this particular way and how can we break away from that? What are alternative ways of remembering? And that's what makes, I think, this more exciting when we start pushing through that. And a, a lot of the work that I see museums do now is really great, but often it is, taking these histories and remembering through the traditional lens. And I think the next step is thinking about how we can push that even further and break those, those sort of like entrenched ideas of remembrance down altogether. Thank you, Moya. I think that the idea of the desire to be remembered is quite interesting mm. because, and actually, David, I wonder if I could get you to pick up on that. And because in a way, this house so, does so much remembering, right? You've got all of these portraits of people who were interested in being remembered. And I'm, I'm just, I'm curious to sort of hear what your thoughts are on this idea of the desire to be remembered? Well, that's very much what places like this were built to do, weren't they? They were built to be a great homage to your wealth, your taste, your status, all those things. Actually, one interesting thing about portraits, talk about missing portraits, there's one really significant missing portrait in this house, which is of the Henry Lassels who made the money in the first place. There's no portrait of him and no portrait known of him. And that's a mystery that I have no answer to. Very strange for all the reasons we said earlier. Every, every very successful man in his own lifetime and in an abhorrent trade, but that he was very successful. And it wasn't even that he was written out of a family history. You know, Henry, every every oldest son since has had Henry in his name. So I'm David, David Henry George. Mm -hmm. um, Actually, no, none of my kids are called Henry, but that's another story. <laughs> um, uh, so that's strange. Sorry, it's slightly off the topic of what you're saying, but, that, but in, in what is remembered and who is remembered and why, you know, houses like this are all about, uh, tend to be just about that. Remember me, a great portrait of the great me, and here in the background is the house that I built or the terrace that I built, or here are the... Uh, uh, paintings that I commissioned or the, uh, the porcelain that I bought or whatever it might be it is all about glorifying those those things and, and the objects involved are beautiful They're some of the most beautifully made beautifully crafted objects ever but it's easy to get distracted by that they also have a story behind them obviously I'm not an art historian I'm a filmmaker by profession so I understand you know, the importance of being able to tell stories about things. Mm. So often the story behind things is, is as interesting or as important, maybe more so, than the actual object itself. Moya, I'm going to come back to you on that because I, I'm curious about other ways you talked about in your podcast other societies described or had other ways about 
of memory? Maybe I'll leave you with that question if you want to think on it. But I'm curious about, you know, other ways of memory or other ways of remembering and other ways of telling story that, you know, perhaps speak to this idea of not everybody wanting to necessarily be portrayed or depicted, but not wanting to lose something. I mean, if I had the answer to that, I would be running the National Portrait Gallery. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, when, sure I think, when I think about this, when I'm, what I've been thinking about recently is when I go to sites like Howard or museums, galleries, etc. Um, and I think about the things that really strike me and stand out in the way that they are presenting a narrative. And some of those that I'm most struck by, and this may seem like a tangent, but um, I went to Paris recently and went to the Thierry Mugler exhibition mm. and they had a whole room which was just olfactory. It was just smells. And I thought, and it was, it's always stayed with me. Like it stayed mm. with me, this idea that we just went in and we just smelled that and the clothes that were placed on the models there, in another room suddenly they were brought to life because you could see them on people. And it's this idea of, I, I guess, thinking beyond just these stayed objects, here's a written history, here's that. How can you bring it, like, more and more places are experimenting with this idea of, like, playing sound, interaction, oral. There was a really good exhibition at the Design Museum recently, which was all just touch. Mm. And But when we're thinking about, for example, uh, the history of particularly Afro-Caribbean people in the UK or in formerly enslaved peoples, um, just... I guess, the black population in the UK and its presence throughout history. How can we tell that beyond a collection which is uh, simply a pair of handcuffs or a piece of plank from wood? What is, you know, there's walking tours, which I find really, really evocative at the moment. Like they went to one in Paris, which was walking around the black neighborhoods of Paris, but it took it further and there was like this, you know, this stone. What does this represent? And it was actually a memorial to a young man who'd been killed in the 1980s by the Parisian police there. And he was, uh, I think, a young man from, I want to say Senegal, but it might be Morocco, actually. Um, but it's those kind of things where it's, it's a different way and it brings the person's mm. story, story to life in a very humanising way and adds texture mm. beyond simply you stand here and you read this off a plaque and that is history. How do we tell these stories in a way that makes that person real to you? Mm. And something I think about a lot is in the podcast, there's this one anecdote that I talk about constantly because it's so evocative. And I was talking to Dr. Steve um, Buckridge, who's a textiles historian. And he, we were talking about um, fabric that enslaved populations in Jamaica and further in the Caribbean were clothed by, which was often made in places like Wales. Interesting on its own, like a really fascinating story. And then he said, have you heard of lace bark? And I was like, what's lace bark? And, he said to me, well, lace bark was what the black African women would make out of bark. They made this amazing lace. They would soak the bark in, in water for hours and hours and they made this fantastic, delicate lace that looked just like the European lace. And of course, at this point in time, black African enslaved women were not meant to be wearing lace. That was not a thing. And I suddenly had this image of these women. And Because it's another thing I didn't know about enslaved populations is that they actually, not time off, but they had time when they sometimes were on the plantation. They had Sunday markets. They had these whole lives as well that were obviously constrained and curtailed by their enslavement, but they built this community. Mm. They, like, that suddenly brought to life to me. These women wearing this like rich lace that they'd made from barks of trees. And suddenly I was there, I could see them. And they were, they were real to me, they were right in front of me. And that's what I think about when we're talking about these histories. How do we make that person be standing right in front of you so you can see them, you can hear them, you can smell them, suddenly you're there. That's what I'd like from the museums and galleries I've well, fortunately, we have someone. <laughs> Would you like to respond to that, Nick? I'm sure you've been thinking about these things. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a great point. Uh, it's a tall order as well. But I think, um, yeah, no, you're totally right. And I think, I mean, we've been thinking a lot about this. And it's kind of interesting as well. Like, I've just been writing the essay for our new book when we open, which is about 
the history of the National Portrait Gallery. And it's a very, like for a country to have a portrait gallery is a very particular thing. We were the first in the world when we were founded in 1856. And just reading through the history, and it's just, it's very interesting because it's in a way, there's a kind of continuum between when we were founded in the Victorian era, as you said, you know, at the height of empire in a very different time. But even then we had two kind of aims. One was to give people uh, examples of individuals to emulate or aspire to, but also to show people in all of their complexity and their faults. And I think that's super interesting. And it, it's been very interesting also working on this rehang, you know, during these kind of culture wars of the last two years, which are very divisive and kind of reductive in some total. And I think a lot of people have a great sense of curiosity and have the intelligence to understand complexity and, and how good and bad mm. can exist simultaneously. And I think- In the same person. Exactly, yeah. Or, or we were saying before with, with Diane that you can look at a beautiful object and understand that there's also terrible things around mm. it. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away the beauty of the object, but actually understanding the awful things around it add to the complexity. And I think we need to get to this point where we can have a kind of complex understanding of the past it's always a process of addition. So, you know, everything we're doing is not to kind of take away or tear things down, is to kind of add to the complexity of what's there, is to add to the variety of who's depicted, mm. is to hopefully encourage a greater number of people of all different walks of life to kind of come and visit and explore and discuss and ask the very questions that you're asking. And it's just about like, if you are a steward of a museum, you want the museum to kind of go on and thrive. And that is through people and audiences. So this is your job is to like, encourage new people, you know, bigger audiences to come and ask questions and engage and be critical. I think it's interesting, this idea as well of not seeing the additional things as a threat, because sometimes I feel like people think, you know, museums have a one in one out policy, right? No, like if we, yeah. if we bring this new thing, then something has to go yeah. where it doesn't, yeah, I mean, would you both like to respond to that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, just to say, like, okay, so when you when you come in, uh, you'll still have the Tudor Gallery. It'll now go back to the Plantagenets, and so the, the, all of the great things that people love about the Tudor Gallery. And, you know, I know that people come specifically to the MPG to see those portraits. They will all be there, and so will John Blank and this incredible story of you know a trumpeter in the court of Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth, and it just adds to the variety and the richness and hopefully the excitement of of what's there. Where did you want to add to that? I mean, my point's slightly adjacent, which is just that when we're doing the podcast, this is something I think about a lot in terms of not telling this binary good or bad history. Yeah. I think people can be quite scared of this idea of embracing yeah. the, the, this idea of bad, but that's not what it is at all. History is, it's a full-throated, like, complex beast, right? You can't tell it in its entirety unless you've shown the whole picture. That That is the history. Yeah. And I think it's so sad in Britain that we're missing out on all these different parts that make ourselves. We've siloed off different aspects because either it's unpalatable or it's been compartmentalized and it happened far away. Well, it didn't. It, it's something that is, you know, when we talk about enslavement, we lived in a plantation economy. It was a plantation society. It, it's affected everything from the way our railways have developed to the manor houses we're sitting in right now, but also right down to the fact we have overdrafts. You can't tell the history of Britain without understanding this history. And you can't, you know, we are here because you were there. It's, it's that thing. But that shouldn't be something we shy away from. We should be excited to explore that because then we find out more about our past and I think one of the reasons that this country now is so mired in repeating the same mistakes over and over again is because it's so afraid to really confront its past mm. um, but it, we shouldn't be afraid of the dark we've got lights <laughs> oh bars yeah. bars wow. write that down somebody <laughs> yeah. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Thomas, I see you nodding there in the in the yeah, a lot of nodding. Yeah, a lot of nodding. Did you wanna? I mean, as somebody who's also practicing, you you know, you're a practicing artist. All of these, you know, if we want to use the phrase cultural conversations, but all of this like really heightened stuff is happening. How mm. how are you thinking about? Or are you trying not to think about it at all? It's a tricky one. Mm. Um, I think this whole idea of a culture war is being manufactured by certain entities who want there to be a culture war because it, it, it makes them money. Uh, keep people divided and makes a lot of other people money and it keeps us away from um, drawing ourselves together to, to move collectively in a direction that we should or could be going in to actually affect real change. So I don't believe in the culture war. I think when you really get down to the nuances of conversation, if you talk to someone who even is expressing fear that they might tear down church or statue because then everything is going to you know, disappear in their lives, you know, that's not really what it's about. They're worried about change. I think also this, this emotional element which is expressed through the absolute resistance to or fear of change comes from suppression and a national suppression. So when you suppress, that's more saying, when you suppress the story of the United Kingdom, you know, the history of the United Kingdom, people know, you know it's built on a lie and you're terrified that that lie is going to see the light of day. And because what happens? And because you're, you're not given that, um, that kind of uh, incremental uh, journey to becoming comfortable and becoming 
sort of uh, affair with it. You know, you, you're not, you don't know how to handle it. And the fear is just there, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And then suddenly there's a, you know, we just missed it, but you know, there's a, there's a sculpture of a 12 foot black person. Oh well, no, you know, the world is going to fall down, but it won't because this is part of the history. This is the United Kingdom. We exist. You know, we've built the United Kingdom. This, this, this place is literally built on the money that was created from black people. So to, to, to tell black people to be complicit in covering that up, to be quiet. Don't, don't look like yourselves. Don't sound like you because that's worrying. Um, I find mad, but I've grown up in this country. You know, you know, you grew up in this country, you, you learn how to deal with it. You, you are indoctrinated into the ways of getting along. Mm -hmm. And I think it's when I stopped trying to get along and I started to make it work, which really expressed my experience as an individual, which then chimed with other people's experiences. And then as a microcosm, actually connected to a general population's experience. We all experience the, the suppression and the oppression of having to be part of a system that is essentially built against us. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I find museums and, and, and these institutions interesting in difficult places. And there's other artists who deal with the very makeup of, of the museums and, and the sort of the, the import that they give an object or give a story. You know, this idea of narrative. You know, I've done a whole series of works based on provenance and narrative and who gets to create that narrative mm. and who gets to speak for oneself. Like, as an individual, you know, if you're, if you're a black person in particular um, professions, you represent that whole thing. It's ridiculous, but the pressure is incredible and you're supposed to just handle it like it's nothing. So when it comes to discussions like this, I'm really, I, I said before that I'm like, I don't know where I stand. I'm, I think it's amazing what you're doing. I think that wanting to be seen and wanting to be remembered is really important, but remembered as what? And seen as what? Like seen as a replication of, of the thing that was suppressing you or seen as an actual individual who connects on a real level to the people around you. I don't know, like I make my work knowing that the majority of people want to be on a horse feeling grand, right? <laughs> I know this, because sometimes I'm there. I want to be, be respected, but I make my work as an alternative to try and every now and again be there so that we go, oh God, yeah, you know, to put it into context. Thank you, Moya. Yeah. Oh, just so nice. It's, I think in, in Britain, one of the things we do as well is when we're trying to pull up these histories, we, we, we have two versions, which is either, you know, we have the, the standout individuals like the Uruwa Equianos, or we have people that, we, we have the underdogs and we just don't talk about them, the enslaved, the homogenous population of the enslaved. But one of the things we're raising quite a lot is the very ordinary histories of the black people who lived, worked alongside in, with communities, married the white population. We've been here for so long and also mixed race people have been here for so long because of that but those histories of these ordinary particularly working class people just erased like um, I was talking to Lisa Williams of the Edinburgh Car Caribbean Association in one of the episodes of the podcast I do and she told this fascinating story about Malvina Wells this mixed race um, woman who her graves in Edinburgh I think it's at St John's Episcopal I'm not religious, I'm sorry if I butchered that, churchyard. Um, and you can go and see, and she died at like the age of 82. She'd come over attached initially to uh, a rich, wealthy family. There's, oh, but there's so many records about her that we don't usually have about working class women. At one point, she even managed to buy her own house. Eventually, she lost it. But this whole story about Malvina Wells, that textured her ordinary life, 
We don't get that much. We don't talk about that. And we separate these histories out into, okay, someone, somebody came over and they got to rise to a very prominent position as a black person. And that's the only person we're going to talk about. And then everyone else was enslaved. Mm. That's it. There's no middle ground. But those middle stories, those contextual stories, that's what makes up that full history. And that's what's fascinating. Another person that was on the podcast who was amazing is Annabelle Gilmore. And she's this PhD student at Birmingham. And she's um, studying the black presence in Warwickshire. Just and not even in terms of who were the movers and shakers, who were the ordinary people in the baptismal records. But because this, and this speaks also to this wider sort of divide and conquer idea we talked about, in that white working class people also really erased as well. So you just have baptismal records, you just have burial records, you can't pull their lives together. Those are the gaps as well. Not just portraiture, it's those gaps. Yeah. They, they want to pull you into that system yeah. of, of, of recognition. They want to pull you into that system of basically playing to the, 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 the standards that were already set mm. so that, yeah, so then suddenly it's, it's black people versus working class white people. Yeah. It's not. It's, but, but if you're told, well, there's only so much to go around, well, what are you going to, you've got people who are desperate, what are you going to get? Yeah. You're going to get that conflict. And people who are, uh, you know, benefiting from that, they're happy to see it happen. Um, and this idea, you know, to just, if you have the exceptional individuals, so I keep telling this because my mic goes off, but if, if you have exceptional individuals, that justifies mm. plinths. That justifies the things that already exist. It justifies the systems that exist. And, and things continue. All right, I'm going to bring you in, Nick, because okay. there's been a lot of nodding and mm, um, on this side of the... So do you want to respond to some of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with the points that have been made. And I think class is, is one of the big things that we're talking about as well, which, which very much encompasses race, but also transcends it and could potentially be a point of being also an ally as well, you know? And I think this point about intersectionality is crucial because obviously one of the defining characteristics of this country is the class system. We're sitting in the middle of it now. And, and that's one of the things that we're very much, you know, discussing. And I, I completely agree that, you know, for example, with the portrait gallery, the reason historically that people were on the walls is because they were people of a certain class with certain privileges, and that meant they were probably white men. So it's like you begin from that point, and then you kind of like reduce the pool, and that's what you end up with. And so one of the things that we want to do alongside, you know, many things, is to think about how to show people of all backgrounds, all walks of life, you know, people whose names we don't know, because one of the one of the sort of defining um, reasons for acquiring someone is a known person with a name who then accomplished things. But actually, how could someone who doesn't have a name speak to you about a certain time? So, for example, just to give you a, a case in point, uh, David Bailey, the photographer, you know, great British photographer, still with us. For me, some of his greatest images are of people in the East End of London. You know, not, not his photographs of celebrities or famous people, but these extraordinary images of the East End of London. We don't know the names of these people but they tell you a lot about British society at a certain point. So we're kind of even thinking through like structurally, how do we think about, you know, our founding principles and how do we test them and see if they're still fit for purpose for now? And it goes back to those kind of founding principles about does the person have to be a named known person? Because if it is, if that is the criteria that you've really narrowed the pool of who you're going to there's a whole bunch of people that yeah. just wouldn't, you can't consider the, the yeah. very point you've made. And also like, and you're also, to that point, you're saying that everyone has to kind of somehow uh, subscribe or aspire to excellence and therefore achieving something and you know being exceptional and standing out. But actually, what's interesting about society is the populace. So that's something that we're very much looking at. And somebody would have had to decide that that person's name was important enough in the first place to write down. Who decides yeah. excellence in the right. first place? Yeah. What is exceptional? Yeah. Yeah, um, David, I'm going to bring you in here because one of the things I'm curious about is. 
you know, we're, we're having a conversation about really challenging a lot of, you know, the maybe the founding principles of a place like Harewood House. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for you personally, like, how have you managed to, to get to this point? Like what, what made you okay with doing something that I think a lot of people find super comfortable? Even like they don't even have to be lords or earls, like just regular, <laughs> you know, people on the street find it really difficult. So I'm curious how you've been able to get to here. Well, there wasn't any kind of uh, road to Damascus moment. You know, the light suddenly shone and we realized that's what we should do. I mean, partly it grew out of things that I was interested in anyway, that Diane was interested in anyway artists that we were interested in anyway, music that we're interested in anywhere. I think for a lot of people of my generation, black music, soul music, reggae, whatever it might have been a big influence actually. You know, the first time you came face to face with black culture and it was a knockout, absolute knockout. <laughs> One of the most memorable you know, Bob Marley concerts. So I'm lucky enough to have been seen him live. Just fantastic. So there was th there's that sort of background, mm. if you like. And then having the opportunity here, having this resource, if you like, how do we talk about this stuff here? And that was a gradual process of conversation between Diane and me and people that we knew. And how, how do we, we engage with that? And I suppose the conclusion we came to was that it shouldn't be about us deciding what we thought should happen. Mm. It was actually a question of working with artists, painters, sculptors, and Tom had an exhibition here in... 2015, apparently. 15, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, so I'm terrible, terrible <laughs> on dates. Remember what we were 2016. And working with them, you know, talking what, how did they want to tackle that subject? How mm. do they want to tackle that legacy? And we've tried to do that, as I say, with a whole range of, of, of artists, with um, painters, sculptors, musicians, theatre makers. A uh, wonderful woman, Geraldine Connor, uh, who created this fantastic theatrical production, Carnival Messiah, which we, put, which we performed here in 2007. But even members of the cast here, I can see, I've seen lurking in the back of the audience, actually. So those connections are still, are still, are still there. So it was, it was kind of, it kind of evolved rather than it being a kind of, you know, mm. right, this is it. We know what we want to do from now on. It's never been as clear as that. One thing that was clear was that something that word evolve was crucial to it. It wasn't a question of doing something, a big flashy showpiece the day the abolition of slave, uh, the slave trade was announced, and then that's it. Do you think we've done that, tick that off the list, don't bother it anymore? It has to be something you go on and on and on engaging with, because it's a debate that goes on and on and on and on. It's way off being a conclusion. It's something that so many people are terrified about. Mm -hmm. Just keep talking about it and get more and more people talking about it. The only negative, really, from, from our point of view, has been that we're somehow now seen as exemplars of all this. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, what's true of, of, of Harewood and how the money was made here and, and how it was used is not untypical. There, there is institutions of every sort, education establishment, mm -hmm. banks, the royal family, the church, art, all of them you know, were built all enhanced with money from those places. And they should all be talking about it more honestly. Yeah. I'm, I'm fed up with hearing myself saying these things. I like the other people. Go on, go on. I just, I just wanted to add to that was it's about audiences as well. I mean, and I think what's extraordinary about what you're doing, but also entirely appropriate and a no-brainer is the it's the community in Leeds. You know, it's yeah. it's the community that's created the Leeds Carnival. Yeah. Like you, you need to you want to and you need to bring your local closed community here 
And to do that, you've got to have something to say to them. And one thing I will say is um, that, you know, this really isn't binary. And to Thomas's point, like, you know, a lot of these culture wars are very manufactured and very cynical because to go back to the point about the research we did, you know, it's, it's actually our repeat audience, which tends to be older, middle class and white, that specifically wanted us to evolve the collection and to make it more diverse. Yes, we love it's that. that audience that said, we, we love the National Portrait Gallery. We come all the time. We will always keep coming, but we wish that you were more diverse and more representative of Britain. That's a particular, that's a, that's an audience that you might think would say something different, mm. but actually isn't. So it, there's a fiction about mm. this being somehow antagonistic. I don't think it is. And isn't that like delightful in itself, the, the sort of little tidbit around the assumptions we make about what our audiences yeah. are interested in and like what kind of people are interested in what kind of things. Okay, so I'm just looking at my clock. We're mm. about, we're sort of in about five minutes, we're gonna go to questions. So this is the time for you to like, get the little gray cells going. Um, the, I guess, I mean, I have so many other questions and it's been such a generative conversation so far. I suppose maybe the, the thing that I want to get you all to respond to is, you know, coming back to this idea of missing portraits, you know, when we're having conversations about some really material gain, people being materially deprived, you know, all sorts of really tough histories, you know, where is the role of art in this? I mean, maybe you know, I'd love to get um, a response from all of you, but maybe David, I'd start with you. You know, why why is art still important in these conversations? Well, c culture we're talking about, I guess, is a better word than art. Mm. I, actually, I hate the expression culture wars, but for me, culture is about the opposite of war. I think that all culture, whether it's what is seen as, as high art, oil paintings, or watching as popular art film, all need to, they're about something, whether that's overt or, or hidden or intrinsic. So you, you, can't, you can't get away from it. You know, art, all art forms are dealing with the time that they're in. This house is full of art that was contemporary mm -hmm. when it was commissioned. Diane sometimes calls it you know, the most, uh, uh, the oldest contemporary art gallery in Yorkshire. <laughs> because you know, because the, the, the paintings that were made here, the Reynolds portraits, uh, the turn of watercolors, different, they, they were contemporary artists of the time. They were the, you know, the hot artists of that, of that moment. And that's, that's gone on and on and on. The Thomases of the 18th and 19th century. Thomas, maybe I'll turn to you. I mean, I think this, this point about context is incredibly important. And I think art can be a reflection of attitudes and of um, culture. So for me, I guess, why is art important in this regard? It's because it could be perhaps a rallying point. It could be a moment of interaction where someone sees an idea expressed in a way that they can connect to, in which they can then communicate to someone else. It can cause a knock-on effect to help change people's attitudes mm -hmm. along the way. And it's a, it's a subtle thing. It's not like it has to be a kapow moment. Yeah but it could be something which allows them to register or to gather their thoughts in a way which can then be digested over time and delivered to someone else. And I think that's an incredibly important thing because really, for me, the important thing about this is attitudes. Mm. It's not so much about the objects. I think portraits are fantastic, but without change of attitudes, without a change of a sense of responsibility, what's the point? Mm. So if we can use these moments of representation, or in a different way to help move attitudes forward and, and to kind of rally people, then that's, that's extremely useful. But without it, um, my worry is that it becomes empty. Mm -hmm. What is the point, Nick, in, in this time of, you know, I mean, I think it's such an interesting time for Britain in, in this constant renegotiation of its identity at the mm -hmm. moment. I mean, how, how does the National Portrait Gallery fit into that and the role of art in that? 
Oh, well, I mean, I think we definitely have a role to play. And in a way, the more contested that is, the more that we have a role to play, hopefully, and also kind of bringing people together and realizing what actually unites us rather than separates us. I mean, just you, you asked the question about, you know, what art or what, or what portraiture can do. And I was thinking about uh, something that Thomas Carlyle, the 19th century historian, who was really one of the founding figures of the National Portrait Gallery said, and he said some very ugly things, but he also said some very beautiful things. And one of the really beautiful things he said, which kind of in a way inspired the founding of the Portrait Gallery, was that a portrait was a small lighted candle to understand someone from the past. It's your point about light and dark. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the difference, and he, he compared it to reading books. And he said a portrait could be more revealing of someone than, than a dozen biographies. And I think that's the point that we can all learn about the past through books, which we should do and, and receive information. But I think what art can do is it can help us hopefully heal and achieve kind of some catharsis as well. So. Mm, thank you, Moya. Well, I, I guess, uh, like David said, I don't see art as siloed off. I think that culture should be taken as a smorgasbord as everything is putting together that book that you're reading with the portrait of the person that you're reading about. And I think that art like this and culture is world opening. That's why it's important. Yeah. At a time when the horizons might be seeming narrower politically, uh, geographically in this country, then I think having access to these different worlds, these different, these portals into the past, but also into a contemporary space when you're going to send areas of the National Portrait Gallery, you're going to like the Postal Museum. These are really, really vital. The thing is that we have such restricted access now, mm. more and more, and these the spaces which are not seen as, we talk about as highbrow or the spaces that don't have as much funding, et cetera, those are being cut down even further. So I, I don't see it as just this one you know, we should just be preserving X, Y, and Z. We should be trying and fighting for every single type of art form culture that we can get because people need this diverse range in order to build these worlds that are fully technicolor rather mm -hmm. than just black and white. Um, and I, that's, that's how I feel about sort of culture art situation. But yeah, in, in short, it's, it's, it's horizon opening. Mm -hmm. Like my richest experiences are going to, you know, being taken to like stately homes as a child, but then also being taken to mad local art galleries where you had local artists displaying these really like off the wall works and this DIY stuff, this stuff that came from in, you know, the early 20th century, you had sort of like the Pittman painters. And this is artwork that used to be fully from the ground up, this cultural tradition, which we're losing because of the lack of funding, because where everything else is being squeezed so much. So yeah, culture's world opening, but unfortunately we need those horizons broadened even further, I think. Art as horizon broadening. Can we give our panel a round of applause? Thank you. I think that was fantastic. Um, and there was a lot there. So are there any brave souls that like to ask some questions? We also do have some questions on the online chat. Um, and if you're watching online, welcome. Um, and also please do put any questions in the chat. But is, does anyone want to ask a question from the room? Yes, down the back, go ahead. Uh, wait one second, actually, there's a microphone coming to you. Brilliant. Hi, um, Tyrone Huggins. I was just wondering that the missing portraits, the idea that you have at the moment is not to go back and try to add portraiture to the past of the collection, but to go forward and to start to accumulate. How do you avoid uh, uh, you know, some of that issue of status, the status of the portraits and the individuals you uh, put into the portraits that you're planning in the future? And then just another little bit adding on to that, how do we get at the people 
in the portrait from the past? Great questions. Thank uh, you. Complicated question. Um, well, you can't. I mean, it, you can't change the past, can you? It's not. We're not in. It's not. Not Back to the Future. There's nothing. However much we may want to, there's nothing we can do that's going to change our our, our history. So you start from that point. I think in how you. Um, I think I think that's important in how you choose your subjects for the portraits going forward. I mean, Arthur is an obvious one to start. Somebody we knew well, major figure in the in the local community, and so on. I can now actually announce for the first time in public that our second missing portrait is going to be of the actor David Harewood. Uh, and the connections there are kind of obvious. But it's, but, um, uh, and, and again, it's somebody we've, Diane and I, have got to know over the last couple of years. Uh, and he has delighted, agreed to be the, the second subject. Um, uh, details to be to be uh, to be arranged during this year, but will we'll come out at some point during this year. So we've tried to be careful about doing that. I'm not sure if that really answers your question completely, but it, it's it's trying to find that kind of a, a real contemporary context talking about what is happening today. You can talk about the past, you can talk about the history, you can't, you can't change it, you can't go back and insert things in it to make more what, what you like. Hmm? I, I think that history can't be changed, but it can be illuminated, to go back to yeah. our point about yeah. light and dark. I right. yeah. And I think what we're talking about here is essentially being overlooked, as in people being overlooked. So to go only from forward would be to perhaps continue that, I think there's so many individuals, if we are going to celebrate individuals, who've existed and have contributed to British society that could be looked at in order to fill out that history and that narrative so that people can take pride in their history and realise it didn't just come from slaves. or you know, And other people looking at it go, here's a, a valuable contribution from people who I didn't expect or I didn't know about, I hadn't heard about this. Because there's so many points that in my adult life in terms of history, that I've gone, I did not know that person existed. Yeah. And for me, that would be truly illuminating. But the, the closest we've come to doing this here is a sort of precursor, if you like, of the Missing Portraits series, which we had um, an exhibition around a man called Bertie Robinson, who's the only recorded black servant who ever worked here. He worked here from around uh, at the very end of the 19th century through, about, through to about 1920. And that was sparked by finding up in, in a drawer, in a cupboard, uh, a box of letters from his mother on what island was it, St. Vincent, wasn't it? Was it St. Vincent? Um, uh, to the then Lady Harwood, to and fro, asking, how's my son? Why isn't he writing to me more? He promised to send money back. Classic. He's sending it. it was, had an extraordinarily contemporary edge to it. And it was a whole very, very detailed history mm -hmm. of this man and his family and their relations. And his descendants, who still live here, got to know about this and came and saw the show and it actually filled with a lot of things about our own personal family history. So that's, again, a yeah. sort of invisible figure it's not, the past. I mean, because you're already doing a lot. I just think it's, it's something that could be a national, I think, yeah, you know, right. kind of endeavour. And, you know. I think this is the issue that at the moment we're dependent on a top-down remembrance. Yeah. So we're always going to be dependent on sort of the individual or the, the institution yeah. choosing the people or choosing a project or having the will the cultural will and the political will to do something like pick someone from history and illuminate them. And obviously, if we had a much wider system of funding or much wider access to the arts, then it could be something where, the, for example, there's this amazing project that happened in Manchester, which was called Excavating the Reno, which was um, it was run by a local playwright called Linda. I can't remember her second name, but her name, first name is Linda. And she basically, there was this club that all the young black mixed 
with white children used to go to as, te as teenagers. And it was this amazing site. Like at one point, I think Muhammad Ali turned up and it was famous. And then it just got bulldozed um, in, I think, no, I want to say 1976. Um, and they lost the Reno. And the Reno had been this huge standpoint. And this is like this local history that I think about all the time. And she was like, I want to excavate the Reno. I want to dig up the Reno and I want to discover the histories that have been left there in the site that so many of us went to. And it could only be done with the backing of the Whitworth Gallery. So eventually the Reno managed to take over a top floor. And I remember walking in, I just started crying immediately because uh, like I'd seen suddenly this, this specific history of like mixed race Britons that I hadn't seen ever before. Um, but it could only have been done with that institutional backing. And they dug up all these amazing things like lipsticks and combs and like cans of red stripe. And it was so evocative. It was exactly that grassroots history celebrating all new people. And they made a wall of people who'd been there, many of whom passed in these oral histories. There was all these different installations but it was only because the institution was involved that they had the clout and the, the um, funding to put that in a gallery where people go and see it. Like, it probably could have been put in a local centre. Would I have seen it there? I don't know if I would. So it's again, this. I think when we're talking about this top-down reliance at the moment, it's always going to be unequal and we're probably always going to subscribe to this great person or who gets picked out which individual rather than that more DIY amazing history. Wider arts funding is, is I think, probably the solution to that. So Thomas, I want to ask you a quick question about because one of the one of your commissions. Thank you, Moya, um, and also thank you to the questioner because clearly you've, you've you've like touched a nerve and everyone's like I want to say something, um, which is fantastic. Thank you. But so I know that you had um, the Warm Shores Commission, which was actually a piece of public art, and I'm, I'm curious about as somebody who creates public art as well. Like, how does this kind of marry with the conversation about you know dealing with museums and galleries and and how do you negotiate that? I mean, I, I wanted to make a work which the community were aware of. They were aware of before it manifested, before it was plonked down, you know? I wanted something that they could welcome and would look forward to, and I wanted them to be involved in the process of, of creating it. Um, I also wanted to create a work which talked about the Windrush generation in terms of the historical element and also a potential future, which acknowledged the everyday nature which didn't make it exotic and which didn't make it another which was like, we are here, we're taking space. We've been here for a long time and, and we'll continue to be here, but in a way that connected to anybody through the humanity of these, these figures depicted. And they're not particular individuals who took part in a lottery and now you get to be famous. It's no, it's again, it's like trying to incorporate elements of these people, either their stories or the, their actual physical traits in a way which makes people aware of our commonality um, whether you're from Windrush generation, whether you're, you know, you're descended from the Windrush generation, or whether you've, you've been in the UK you know, via different avenues. So it was a very rewarding project to do. It was a difficult one. Was, well, I was just going to ask, like, did, you, did you need to find that institutional backing? Did somebody come to you? Like this question... Hackney Council, to their credit, came to me and, and I submitted my proposal and um, I was very happy when it was selected and they, they stood by it. And they, they supported it throughout the whole kind of germination of it, um, uh, or gestation of it, excuse me. But it, it came from my practice. I mean, it, it, as I said, it, they're not on plinths. You know, I don't want to dissect the whole practice, but they're standing on the ground that you get to share with these characters. They're at nine foot tall, so the scale's different. They're, they're in bronze, this material of power that's been you know, with us for, for so many thousands of years, which is used to represent the people of worth. Well, there is an absolute history of lack of visibility, particularly within um, African-Caribbean communities. We've got the Windrush scandal, which is still ongoing, which has not been addressed properly. 
And so this was a, a moment of using private funds to try and represent a, a, a part, a very important part of British society who have been, I think, absolutely terribly <laughs> treated, you know, throughout history and, and re more recently in a way which wasn't othering and, and exotifying. It was a way to say, this is the, you're part of the very fabric of this, 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 this country. Thank you. And thank you for, you know, sharing that with us, because I think it's also interesting to think about or to learn about the process that you went through. And Nick, I'm gonna bring you in here, because there's so much. Just to find, just to go back to the original yes. question, because there's so much to say and it's so interesting. And, and just your point, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase, but it was about, and it was really to David, but it was about, you know, are you looking back or can you also sort of look forward? And I've, I've kind of paraphrased your question, but I'm gonna just take that as my starting point. And just to say, you know, I mean, certainly from our perspective, it's really incumbent on, upon us to do both. In that, of course, you know, through what we're acquiring now and commissioning, and we do commission, which is unusual and is a sort of very particular thing of the MPG, we can certainly achieve a much more inclusive and actually representative and diverse picture of Britain now. But I think it's also really important to look back and to fill in the gaps where we can. And so, for example, I mean, I've mentioned one or two examples, but I, th I think one thing to say is that this isn't just a kind of like, exercise that you have to do that's heavy is joyful it's creative like it means we get to work with incredible artists so for example i shouldn't give too much away but we've been able to you borrow things away. go on um <laughs> we've been able to like borrow works of art by artists you know where we don't have images but for example like lubaina hibbard's uh, portrait of Toussaint Louverture, you know uh who oversaw the haitian Re uh, revolution or Elizabeth Payton's portrait of Frederick Douglass from the 19th century. And these incredible works of art that, you know, because part of me just wants to show extraordinary works of art as well. This is part of this. Like, in a, in a, this gives us the chance to actually be much more creative about the way we look back at the past. And it's joyful and expansive. That was like, yeah. Did you say joyful and expensive? Expansive. Oh, expansive. <laughs> <laughs> it's also expensive. It's ex yeah, yeah, it's expensive as well. Go ahead, go yeah, ahead. It pulls together what David has just told us about a person in this house uh, that he's just uh, told us a little bit about. And is it Jonathan's approach? Thomas. to Thomas's, <laughs> okay. sorry, Thomas's approach to- That's not your name. Yeah, Thomas's approach to, um, um, to invention, that actually I would love to see Thomas's version of that character as a portrait. Yeah. <laughs> We've got commissions happening. It's all happening tonight. It's all happening tonight. Um, can we just give a huge round of applause to our wonderful panel? Thank you. Thank you. Oh. From not being afraid of the dark because we have lights, mm -hmm. you know, to talking about constant evolution and hopefully our work not being seen in any particular way, but just about people. And also being very excited about the National <laughs> Portrait Gallery reopening in June. Come. I think we've covered so much. And for those who live nearby, Dr. Arthur France, actually there's an exhibition about the uh, Leeds Carnival and, the, and Dr. Arthur France's life. Um, so you can come check that out. I think it's between Friday, Saturday and Sunday uh, of your choosing. Um, and that's part, and I think it's a wonderful exhibition. I really, really encourage you to check out if you're, you know, if you're online, you know, come and come, come to Harewood House. It'll be a good time. Um, but my thanks uh, to Dr. Nicholas Cullinan, 
um, Thomas J. Price, uh, Moya Lothian-McLean, and David Lassels for a fascinating conversation today. And to Harewood House and Intelligence Squared for putting it all together. The first Missing Portraits exhibition after France, Son of a Small Island, will continue until Sunday, the 26th of February. So visit harewood.org to find out more. I've been Yasmin Abdul-Majid. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or voice note with your thoughts at podcast at And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or dive into 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. <laughs>